What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real outperformance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big-time blue-chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we're going to provide you in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we'll look at why Capital One's bid for Discover will likely face a rigorous antitrust review by the U.S. Justice Department. Plus, we'll discuss how shrinking advertising on traditional TV channels is impacting sales at Paramount Global. But first, we dive into the retail space. This week, Macy's said it plans to close almost a third of its U.S. locations and this comes despite Macy's reporting fourth quarter revenue and earnings that exceeded low analyst expectations. All right, for more, we're joined now by Mary Ross Gilbert, senior equity analyst who covers retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we first asked Mary about her take on Macy's most recent quarter. The focus really wasn't on how they did in the fourth quarter. It's really their new plan. That was the big focus, the new plan and their guidance for the year. So their guidance came in softer than consensus. And I guess it's just no surprise just thinking about how department stores are under pressure. And we've seen it across the board with, you know, again, Dillard's showed some weakness. We're seeing it with uh, Macy's and their outlook. But Macy's has a plan to address the, the department store model in shuttering 150 underperforming stores. And then they're going to invest in the 350 remaining. And those are going to be primarily in A and A plus, plus plus malls. And what they're going to do is increase the service levels. Beauty has been something they've been investing in almost every year and expanding the floor space dedicated to beauty. You'll see that they have expanded the space and who knows, they could expand it again this year. We've been seeing it for the last five years that that space has been expanded. So there's a lot of details in what Macy's is doing. It's something they need to do. They really need to up their game and that's exactly how they started their presentation. And that includes really making the assortments a lot better than they are. Because if you look at the inline store performance at malls, the ones that are executing, such as the Abercrombies, the Urban Outfitters, they're outperforming. Hmm. So Mary, I was kind of surprised to see this number of stores, 150, because I kind of thought that this decade plus long shrinkage of department store footprints across the country by a lot of different companies, that was more or less kind of we're done that or we're at near the finish line. So to see another big round of closings, that kind of surprised me. Did it surprise the market at all? Or is this something that analysts and investors have been asking for? What Macy's had said is we don't need to close doors except for the, the usual stores that you close every year, which is maybe less than 10 per year. 
But the reason that they've decided to close them is because these stores were underperforming, but they were still profitable on a four-wall basis. So historically, that their thought was, well, if it's still profitable and we're, we're still generating cash, we'll keep it open. And this time what they did is they took a more holistic approach and said, okay, even though it's four-wall profitable, we could do a lot better with the funds that we could generate closing these stores, selling the real estate, and redeploying it back into the existing store base and for all the initiatives that they have going mm -hmm. forward. It makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. we really need to rethink the department store model. It has to evolve. Mary, does this do enough to get activist investors off Macy's back? <laughs> that is a good question. I think it may. I think the board has made it very clear that they are supporting this plan. Could they enhance the board with additional directors? That could be a possibility. So we'll learn more about that in the coming months. But I think that this plan is, it's been decided that this is the, the move forward. And when you think about what's happening with the activists, it usually involves the real estate. And what we have seen in past transactions is the real estate is usually milked and it can be to the detriment of the retail operations. Talk to us about the, like a relative performance between like a Macy's store and a comparable Bloomingdale store. Is the Bloomingdale store materially more profitable, I guess? Yes, they don't disclose the profitability on Bloomingdale's versus Macy's, but Bloomingdale's outperforms as does Blue Mercury. This year, their comp sales were down 1.6% because the aspirational luxury consumer is spending less. And we've been see, you know, hearing about the overall luxury business being impacted, especially after we came off the post-pandemic spending from stimulus checks that really had that aspirational customer going after luxury. So now that that's kind of falling back, we're seeing more of a normalization. This is something Nordstrom also cited. So their sales were just down 1.6%, but they think that could probably stabilize and, mm -hmm. and go higher next year. And of course, you know, with the beauty side on luxury, you know, that's posting positive comp sales. Yeah, Mary, I was going to ask about then the inventory. Macy's notoriously last year struggled with inventory. The last quarter we saw they really got it together. What did we learn this quarter about their inventory? Yeah, so even though inventory was up 2% year over year, it's still down over 20% uh, versus 2019. So they've really done a great job reducing their inventory. And that means that they're having less clearance activity. This is something that's going to affect their first quarter because last year they had more clearance and this year less. So they're doing a great job overall. They've just been improving their execution with data, technology, logistics, and they're going to be even employing some generative AI. They've already been employing machine learning. So we'll see more and they're going to be streamlining operations. We didn't talk about that, but they're going to be consolidating uh, some of their facilities. So they've really, and they've reduced layers within the management structure. So overall simplifying the operations. So all of these things could restore positive growth in 2025. Our thanks to Mary Ross Gilbert, senior equity analyst who covers retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. We move now to the auto industry. Now, we were told earlier in the week that Apple is canceling a decade-long effort to build an EV. For more on this and the current state of the electric vehicle industry, we were joined by David Welch, Bloomberg Detroit bureau chief. We first asked for his take on this week's news. Look, really, take the airplane up about 20,000 feet on Apple's decision. Their margins are, what, 30 or 40 percent? And gross margins for Tesla and General Motors about the same these days at about 16 percent. 
and you have to spend billions of dollars to make this vehicle, why would they do that? Right. So I think that's really what this is about. They were looking at a, an electric vehicle that was going to be about $100,000. So this was going to be a luxury Apple EV. And we're, you know, we see Rivian, we see Lucid. Yep. You know, that, that's rarefied air. That, that's a tough sell. There's just There just aren't that many people who can afford a $100,000 vehicle. And then you know, one other thing I, I like to bring up with Apple is they talked about Apple TV for a long time. And everyone thought we were going to have this Apple TV hanging on the wall, but right. making televisions is a lousy, high capital, <laughs> low margin business, kind of like automobiles. And then they gave us a box with content. So, <laughs> you know, Apple supplies CarPlay to automakers. You know, they, they may still have an autoplay with some kind of content sort of thing in their vehicles, but I think they looked at the capital side of this and, and said, you know, that's not what they do. They create cool stuff and contract someone else to make it. Uh, the business yep. just never made a lot of sense for them. Hey, David, what's the feeling in Detroit these days as to kind of how this EV thing is going to evolve going forward? I mean, it seems to have hit kind of a, a lull here in terms of the enthusiasm. And I guess a lot of folks are trying to get a sense of, is it because the cost is just too high? Is it because people just don't like EVs? Is it because there's not enough choice? There's not enough charging stations? What's the feeling in Detroit as how this thing will evolve? It's all of that, but I would I would say especially choice and and price. I mean, look, there, there's one EV on the U.S. market that sells for less than $40,000 now. It's a Nissan Leaf. It's a compact hatchback, which Americans hate, that gets about 200 miles of range. And so everything else is much more expensive than that. And for most Americans, that doesn't cut it, particularly when the charging network is bad. So all these things are sort of related. But I think the car makers are now really cautiously watching this. And, and the vehicle to watch in the next year is General Motors is going to sell an electric Chevy Equinox. So the Equinox is a small crossover SUV. It's, it's kind of the new family car because no one buys sedans in. And they're going to sell that EV for $35,000, and it'll go 320 miles on a charge, which is pretty good. And that will kind of tell us if the mass market is ready to go electric. Because right now, a lot of the people who buy EVs, they're not just early adopters and rich people. They're early adopters and rich people with three or four other cars in the garage. So if they need to drive on a long road trip, they pull the Land Rover out, gas it up and go. <laughs> and so can the industry sell EVs to people who have one car in their garage? And, yeah. and, and we'll see. So that's going to tell us a lot about what's going to happen with this market and, and how flat the middle of this S-curve is in order to get to the next wave. David, I'm also wondering just the mood, I mean, to Paul's point, the mood in Detroit, like how do the workers feel about all of this, right? I mean, we know the shift to EVs. Eventually, when you're just making EVs, you need less workers, et cetera. Um, and I'm just wondering kind of, yeah, like how do they feel right now? So look, the, the, I'm not totally convinced, by the way, that it's going to need fewer workers. I think okay. over a long period of time, maybe. But that, that's a different issue. The, the union worker does think that. And, and they also think that the engine and transmission jobs will be gone and batteries will come in from someplace else and, and they won't be the ones making them. So there is a lot of fear. And I think they're breathing some kind of a sigh of relief that maybe a lot of these workers are a bit older. They'll be retired before this is a real issue. <laughs> and so I, I think if you're if you're the union, you're looking at this transition as being longer and slower than everybody thought probably two years ago. And so it'll be more manageable. You know, the, the, you know, the attrition can be just done by retirements and, and people won't lose their jobs and be left with nothing. 
uh, it, it'll just. But it, 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 is the commitment from the car companies still there, David? Because I, I could make an argument. I think half of this country will never go electric for reasons other than economics, other than powertrain. Was it like look or what? what it, Politics. I'm not huh. going green. That's interesting. I, I've sort of thought for a long time that Elon Musk has gone conservative for two reasons. One, he's been fighting with the government, so he hates regulators. Democrats get pinned with regulation, so he went conservative. I think the other is that guy's a brilliant marketer. It's the most underrated thing about Elon Musk. And he knows that EVs have been politicized. He knows conservatives don't like them. And so I think he went conservative because maybe they'll buy EVs from their guy, right? He's the guy on Twitter letting them say whatever they want. And I've always sort of thought with no evidence that maybe that's what he's doing. But eventually everyone's going to go EV because that'll just be the powertrain available. The question is, how long does it take to get there? Our thanks to David Welch, Bloomberg Detroit Bureau Chief. All right, coming up, we're going to break down why a Capital One Discover deal will likely face a rigorous antitrust review by the DOJ. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Next, we take a look at the antitrust space. So it's likely that Capital One's bid for Discover will face a rigorous antitrust review by the DOJ. And this comes as the proposed $35.3 billion mega merger would create the largest credit card lender in the U.S., to discuss this and other deals that are facing scrutiny, we were joined by Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. We first asked Jennifer for her Capital One Discover prediction. This one is such a tough one. You know, I think that the Department of Justice is kind of in a conundrum with this one, right? Because they're under a directive to get tougher on deals and in particular get tougher on bank deals. I mean, this is come from back in 2021 when President Biden issued an executive order saying, look, you know, we can't just rubber stamp these bank deals. We've got these huge banks. We've had problems with banking and we need to get more aggressive. And the Department of Justice is on board with that. You know, we've heard their statement saying that they're on board with that. 
Um, but you also have a market that simply hasn't been competitive for many, many, many years. And that's in credit card processing, right? We really have just two biggies, Visa and MasterCard. And this deal provides an opportunity to really bolster competition in an area that's been problematic ever since I can remember. When I started antitrust, the very first lawsuit I worked on was the Department of Justice versus Visa and MasterCard, alleging that they were engaging in conduct that was blocking out Discover and American Express. And ever since then, right, we've mm. had allegations of or private litigation, public litigation against those two companies for antitrust violations, and we've had regulation. So this deal does have these strong pro-competitive benefits, but you've also seen massive political reaction against it. So you really have two very strong opposing sides. And I think it's just going to come down to the investigation and how the Department of Justice views the credit card issuing market and the overlaps in the credit card issuing market between these two companies and how it weighs out any potential for harm it might find against this this pro-competitive aspect. So but it, it seems like a reasonable argument that putting Capital One and Discover together does in fact create a viable competitor to Visa MasterCard. Otherwise, there will never be a viable uh, competitor. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's why this is an unusual deal because you know all companies with deals come in and say, oh, there are all sorts of pro-competitive benefits that are gonna benefit consumers and innovation, et cetera. And usually sometimes they're kind of lawyer created. Sometimes they're really, you know, it's, it's unclear whether they're gonna come to fruition. And most of the time the Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission are gonna be very skeptical about those claims. They say they don't really ever bear fruit. But in this case, it's a much stronger claim, and mm -hmm. it is kind of obvious to see how there really truly could be a, a very significant pro-competitive benefit here. And so it could be one of these unique deals where that aspect is given more weight than usual by the Department of Justice and, and possibly be considered important enough to allow the deal to go through, even if there might be some other issues. Jen, couldn't I have made the same argument with, say, Spirit and JetBlue? And that definitely didn't work out. You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because I see so many parallels between that case and this case, even though completely different industries, because there was a very strong argument that those two combined could have bolstered competition against the legacy airlines, Delta, United, et cetera. But the problem there was that there was a small set of consumers that really depended on the unbundled low fares that were offered by Spirit. And we're going to lose out where JetBlue took over those routes and retrofitted the planes and created more space, but raised fares. In a weird way, you kind of have the same dynamic here. You can create a lot more competition as against the incumbents, the big legacies, Visa and MasterCard, but you might have some sort of a negative effect on underserved consumers because Capital One and Discover, when they issue credit, they tend to focus more on underserved populations than do some of the other big issuers of credit. So people who are new to credit, people who carry a revolving balance, subprime borrowers. And it may be that there's a view that this impacts a smaller group of subprime borrowers. And in JetBlue and, and Spirit, at the end of the day, that won out. The DOJ won because of that harmful impact on a small set of particular mm -hmm. consumers. You have the same thing here. But what you might have here is a stronger argument on the pro-competitive side than you had in that case. Is there an argument to be made for some of these potential deals that are getting a hard time from the DOJ or FTC to kind of buy time till November 6th of this year? Absolutely. <laughs> like, run out the no... clock? Like, is this part of a strategy? I mean, absolutely. And look at Capital One and Discover. They very well are probably going to bleed into the next administration, whether it's Democrat or Republican. 
There is no doubt, Alex. I mean, historically, Republican administrations have the reputation in the merger world of being more business friendly and also being far less skeptical of claims of efficiencies, giving them a lot more weight. And that's going to be important, as I mentioned in this deal. Right now, it's a little bit of a wild card. It used to be 10 years ago that whoever came in to run the FTC, if we had a Republican president, whoever got appointed as chair, the Republican majority there, and whoever came in on the DOJ side, were likely to be more business friendly, were likely to look at efficiencies in a more friendly manner. Right now, though, that we have kind of two different kinds of Republicans. You have sort of a Josh Hawley type, and you guys may have seen in the news that he's already come out and complained about this deal, said the Department of Justice should block it. And then you kind of have the Joe Simons type, who was the chair of the FTC in the previous Trump administration, a little bit more traditional in the way we think of Republicans in the antitrust world. And so I think to some extent, it might depend on who you get at the DOJ, but I would still say that it ticks higher. The chances of getting cleared probably tick higher if we have a change in administrations next year. Our thanks to Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. All right, let's go to big tech, Paul, because Amazon.com finally joined the famous Dow Jones Industrial Average. So this week, the e-commerce giant replaced Walgreens Boots Alliance in the 30 stock gauge. Yes, Amazon's inclusion in the Dow is another milestone in the retailer's rapid expansion. The company already sells goods of all kinds and runs the world's largest cloud computing business. But Amazon is still working on ongoing initiatives to boost market share and profits. So discuss all things Amazon and the latest in the retail space. We're joined now by Poonam Goyle, senior U.S. e-commerce and retail analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. We first asked her why people are getting so excited about Amazon. I think it's all about profits. For a long time, Amazon was all about market share. And today, the story is really a profit story. It's the profitability that's about to unfold at Amazon that's really getting people excited and interested. We wrote about this a few months ago where, you know, if you look at their most lucrative businesses and everyone knows of the cloud, which generates 30% EBIT margins, which we think can go to 40%, that could be a $200 billion business. So you're looking at 60 to $80 billion in profits in the the coming years. But then if you add advertising to that, and Paul, you know That's the space right, yeah. well, they have 50% EBIT margins, and we can see advertising growing to $100 billion in just a few years. So you're talking about $50 billion in advertising, plus if you add another 60, 70 of cloud, you're talking about big profit number here. And I think that's what's getting people excited. Aside from that, retail is growing. And part of the reason that advertising is doing so well is because people go into Amazon as if it was a search engine, right? You go in and you search for something. But the difference with Amazon versus a search engine is you go with the purchase intent. People go into Amazon looking for something and to click that buy button. They already know they want it. They just want to find it and get it there in two days or less. That is such a good point. And this is a great example of of this story of Amazon replacing Walgreens. So I was talking to an anchor who's been struggling with feeling sick and feels like that winter, like she's just sick all the time. And I was telling her about Airborne, which you take if you feel a coming on of a cold. She's like, oh, where do I buy it? Amazon. And I'm like, no, (laughs) go to your local drugstore. It's two blocks away. But that idea, right, that like walking those two blocks isn't going to happen and I have to go to Amazon (laughs) to buy the thing because it'll come in two days and I'm not even worried about it. Where is the downside though, Poonam? I mean, you laid out a pretty convincing case. So how do I, I don't know, what do I worry about? 
So I think, you know, the downside, if we enter a consumer recession, clearly Amazon will be impacted, right? So will the rest of retail. But I think that's near term. And as we've seen in past cycles, what goes down comes up eventually. Amazon is one of those places where we think if you view it for the longer term, there's just a lot of opportunity across all its businesses. We can't control the macro, but with their logistics platform in place, and, and even this example that you gave, you know, you need cold medicine or you need anything and you have to go to CVS or somewhere else because you need it now. You can't wait six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours for it. But I'll tell you that Amazon's delivery has gotten much faster. I mean, I'm seeing stuff at my door that I ordered in less than 24 hours, sometimes eight to 12 hours. And that's pretty incredible. And that's really a part due to their realignment of their distribution centers, which they're able to infuse an even faster delivery. See, now I have a general idea where Poonam and her family live. It's literally amongst, or very close to like, I think all these distribution centers in central Jersey. It's unbelievable. Mm, I think we've got to be like the central, we have to be like the distribution hub of the, the East Coast, it seems like. You're like a Jersey promo. You're oh, like yeah, a I am. Jersey I am. Promo, <laughs> just so what, we're clear. I, when I see the gov, I tell them, you know. Um, <laughs> so, Poonam, let's back away from Amazon. Talk to us about just retail in general here. How's the consumer doing out there? What are you hearing from your companies? I think the consumer is very focused on value today. If you're seeing the retailers that are actually being able to drive the share gains, you'll see that they offer some sort of value in their proposition, whether it was from Walmart, you know, that's doing well. But then we hear from the other retailers, the more discretionary ones, and they're struggling. Even the athleisure companies, we heard, you know, from Puma and Adidas, we heard from some of the other companies where they may have done well in 4Q because holiday was really strong last year. But when they look at for their guidance, it's been conservative for the most part from most of the retailers that I've heard from. And I think that just goes to show you that you have to have what the consumer wants and you have to have it at the price that the consumer wants for you to actually succeed in today's environment. You know, we talk about inflation, Poonam. Prices by and large in the supermarket don't come down after they shot up however many per percent here. That's just the inflation rate of growth is slowing. How about for like Adidas? Did they ever cut the price of a shoe because inflation's <laughs> declining? Does that no. ever happen? No, they add discounts, right? So if you yep. want to bring prices down, retailers use discounts as a medium to do that. But oh, Paul. once yep. prices go up, they, they don't come down. <laughs> See, that's, that's a problem with inflation. Yeah. That's why inflation is insidious. Yeah. But so... To kind of Paul's question, but really to my question, are we going to see a lot of discounting from retailers? So I don't know if you guys know this. Have we talked about Alex as a counter indicator? No. I only shop on sale. Okay. So where I'm shopping, you should be shorting the stock. So, <laughs> so this is the joke that winds up happening because I'm shopping there because their inventory is bloated and because the sales are so good. So am I going to be going to Bloomies in the next couple weeks or are they finally have their pricing power and inventory in check? I think inventory is getting more in check as we move into the spring. Darn so I was in store. The discounts were pretty reasonable. They weren't too aggressive. There were some clearance racks across the mall, but I can tell you the stores were quiet. So it's, it's just interesting because there's new inventory that's flown in for the spring. And as stores put this new inventory out, they're going to be a little careful with their discounting. And, and we could see more discounts come in in April on the spring inventory. But for now, they're being steady and careful with them. 
Our thanks to Poonam Goyal, Senior U.S. E-Commerce and Retail Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up on the program, a conversation with Mark Hoplamazian, President and CEO of Hyatt Hotels and the state of the hotel industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We move now to the hotel industry. So Hyatt Hotels recently reported net income for the fourth quarter and full year 2023 that surpassed analyst expectations. For more on this and the state of the hotel industry, we were joined by Mark Hoplamazian, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hyatt Hotels. We first asked him about Hyatt's most recent quarterly results and the messaging the company is trying to get across. The clear message was really centered around the fact that the transformation of the company to an asset lighter platform has now shown up in the numbers in a very material way. Uh, we had the highest free cash flow that in the company's history. We also had the mix of our asset light earnings to our total earnings went up to 76%. Five years ago, that was in the mid 40s. Hey, Mark, describe first what, what your asset light strategy is. Is that relying more on franchisees? Yeah. So it's not really, I wouldn't call it an asset light strategy. I would call it an asset light program where okay. we were selling down. Real, we had we had two major drivers of our earnings. One was from real estate that we own, hotels. Yep. And the other was from management and franchising hotels across the world. We're primarily a management business, not a franchise business, but those are the two businesses. So as we sell down real estate, the proportion that's coming from real estate sourced earnings has been dropping. We've concurrently reinvested in buying new platforms and new brands over the last five years. And that has driven up our management and franchising fees at the same time. So the mix has shifted to much more in the management and franchise fee driven business, which is very low capital intensivity and high margin and high free cash flow conversion. 
So that was the, probably the key message. The other thing that we did is we simplified our financial presentation because we have a business that's a subscription model membership business called Unlimited Vacation Club. And we sold the majority interest in that business to yeah. a third party, which helped us simplify how we report our earnings. And that was very well received by investors. So Mark, that's you in the C-suite managing all of that. What about the demand side of the business? What kind of pricing power do you have per room? And what's the demand situation like? We think about three different demand drivers. One is leisure, which has been the leader of the recovery uh, through post-COVID period. Uh, we think about group business, which is big meetings and uh, conventions and things like that. And we also have business travel, individual business travel. All three are showing signs of great momentum and positive outlook. So starting with leisure, in the first quarter of this year, our pace, meaning our bookings, are up 11% for our all-inclusive resorts in the Caribbean and, and also up for our resorts in the Americas. But leisure travel has been really, really solid. In China, we had a record year for Lunar New Year. The spending amongst uh, Chinese, both inside of China and uh, to other destinations in Asia was at an all-time high. So that's leisure. In group, our pace into this year, that is forward bookings are up 8%. And so we're looking at another solid year of, of growth in meetings. And I think corporations are increasingly resolved to make sure that they prioritize those meetings. Hmm. And then on business transient, the US is lagging, but the overall uh, business transient category demand around the world is about 7% of the low where it was pre-pandemic. So we're getting closer and closer to being at parity. Europe is fully recovered and then some, China is fully recovered and then some, the United States is still lagging. And we're seeing positive signs of business transient travel uh, increasing. So I would say across all three major categories, we're seeing positive trends into 24. Mark, could you talk to us about M&A and, and, and kind of growth via acquisition? How does that figure into your growth plans? What are you guys messaging to the street about your willingness to engage in M&A? Because I know you had a buyout recently of the Apple Leisure Group. I want to see kind of right. what your appetite is going forward. Over the past five years, we've we've invested about $3.8 billion in acquisitions. Um, the biggest one being Apple Leisure Group at $2.7 billion. And um, it's been tremendously beneficial to us because we've been able to expand our customer base in the highest growth and most relevant to us uh, categories, which is leisure, lifestyle, and luxury. And so we've really done this in a very deliberate way to move the company in that direction. In the fourth quarter, I think we had 57% of our total rooms revenue around the world was leisure focused, which is up 20 points mm. from the mid thirties to the mid fifties pre-pandemic till now. So the mix in the company has tremendously shifted, but they've also been very profitable and high value acquisitions. Mm -hmm. The fees per room that we are earning are materially higher than they were five years ago before we made these acquisitions and evolved the company, even as we have grown our select service brands. So we are expanding in lower price points, but our overall fee growth per room has been growing, which is really, I think, part of the equation of actually driving shareholder value on an accelerated basis. I think there, there will be more opportunities for M&A in the future, but probably smaller scale. Talk to me about how expensive it is to run your business. Like where are costs coming down? Where are costs going up? First of all, uh, let's start with the biggest cost category, which is people yeah. at our hotels. In 2021, non-union markets, which is primarily in the South, the Sun Belt, the smile of the United States, our wage rates went up by 20%. Uh, over the course of that year. And uh, that started to mitigate or ameliorate in 2022 and 2023. 
but we experienced a massively acute situation in terms of supply of labor. That's evened out. We were in the mid-teens level. So that's evened out in that, because we also talked about, didn't we, Paul, about uh, cleaning services, like not staffing, housekeeping, (laughs) because you just can't find the workers. So do you feel like you're at the right spot? I would say that there are pockets where we still have shortages. And I think part of that has to do with the nature of the workforce at this point. So we've got a lot of the byproduct of not having a really advanced uh, immigration policy in the in the United States and H2B visa program is that for at times, especially over the summer where you have peak demand, we don't have the right type of labor that's willing to take those jobs and uh, and be happy to start their careers in those jobs. So I think they go together. A lot of the H2B people that come in on an H2B visa, which is a temporary work visa, they come and they leave or the incidence of immigration that allows us to hire people who are coming into the workforce in the United States for the first time has been under some pressure. Now, having said that, overall, our vacancy rates have gone from mid-teens to mid-single digits, so down 10 points, which is extraordinary, and that's over the last 18 months. So we are having a better time finding labor, but there are definitely pockets of constraints still. Our thanks to Mark Koplamazian, president and CEO of Hyatt Hotels. We now turn to the media and entertainment space. This week, Paramount Global, the parent of CBS, MTV, and other networks, reported fourth quarter sales below analyst expectations. This is largely the result of shrinking advertising on traditional TV channels. Mm, Heard that before. Still, Paramount said it sees profit for Paramount Plus domestically in 2025. So for more, we're joined by Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media. And we asked Geetha about her takeaway on Paramount's earnings results. Streaming was definitely a, a, a key positive and subscriber numbers, those came in slightly ahead of estimates. Uh, the bigger positive was the ARPU trends. Uh, so remember, Wall Street has now kind of shifted its focus away from subscriber growth to revenue growth as well as profitability. And they kind of scored pretty well on the revenue uh, growth metrics as well. So ARPU increased about 30% through the year, uh, and that's on the back of a price increase. And then the next thing, of course, to look at was profitability, and their losses narrowed. So they're obviously taking a step in the right direction. I think what investors are kind of really cheering, though, is that they did articulate some kind of strategy strategy uh, to kind of get to profitability and they outlined a, a time frame as well so 2025 is when they're expecting paramount plus profitability which is definitely i think good news the question is i'm not sure whether it's enough what does the ownership here uh, want to do with the company and it appears by all accounts that they're just not big enough to compete against some of these big technology companies some of these big media companies like a netflix like a disney and boy there's a lot of speculation around paramount did they address that at all They didn't. I mean, the one thing, though, that, you know, I think Bob Backish got out of the way was they are going to do something that is good for all shareholders. He kind of underlined (laughs) that because there has been this constant, you know, question about whether, you know, Sherry Redstone is kind of just going to cash out and leave everybody else hanging. And so he, he wanted to, you know, kind of get that out of the way. Uh, but again, I, you know, I think the focus is going to come, you know, the M&A options, Paul, uh, and we've discussed this, seem to be shrinking at this point. You know, Warner Brothers Discovery obviously said they're no longer interested. Uh, other firms have kind of come, taken a look. Apollo being one of them said not interested. The only interested party right now is Skydance, controlled by David Ellison. But again, there's really no natural buyer for all of the assets. Uh, he's not interested in controlling some TV networks. He's only really looking at the studio. So again, I'm not sure that Paramount Management necessarily wants to do kind of a parts sale here, 
Um, so I think they're going to kind of go back and focus on fundamentals. I think some of the unrealistic M&A expectations are kind of going to subside a little bit. We're going to go back to fundamentals, I think, for the time being. Well, to that point, then, did did they buy themselves some time? Because I could make an argument that, OK, well, the slowing in ad sales, maybe that's an industry wide thing. OK, other players are getting hit. They did as of streaming subscribers. So they have some time now. Is that a real statement or no? I think so. I definitely think so, because with with streaming, what we're going to see is we're going to see some sustained momentum in those ARPU increases. So they're doing more, uh, you know, international price increases. They've kind of integrated Showtime into Paramount. And with that, they've been able to take some price increases. So we're going to kind of see that play out to pretty much most of 2024. The question is what happens after 2024, but they definitely have bought themselves some time. What is the, the outlook for the studio here, Geetha? Studio, unfortunately, for 2024 looks really, really bleak. So the big movie, of course, that everybody was kind of looking at was Mission Impossible. That's been pushed out to 2025. We do have a few movies here and there. I mean, you have Quiet Place that's coming out in June. There's obviously some anticipation building there. But again, in general, Paul, the box office outlook for 2024 is is just pretty weak. And that's just because of all of those Hollywood strikes that's pushed out a lot of movies into 2025. It's kind of going to shave off, I think, at least $2 billion off the box office. But presumably we're going to look through that, right? I mean, presumably they're going to recoup that and they'll be pent up in 2025? That is the big question, right? Yes, we've seen kind of box office demand, you know, in general kind of come back. Uh, but it's still about 20% below pre-pandemic level. So the big question is, okay, when all of those big titles kind of hit the screens in 2025, are we kind of going to see a, a bigger resurgence? The jury is still out. I think, yes, it's definitely going to be better than 2024. Is it going to be as good as it was, uh, you know, in its heyday? I'm not so sure. Geetha, how about the, the CBS television network and the Viacom cable networks? You know, one point that was such a big part of this company here. Talk to us about the advertising, the television advertising market. What's kind of the forecast for the next several years? Is it a growing business? Is it a declining business? It's a melting ice cube, uh, oh, Paul, just like, you know, just just like the, the whole pay TV ecosystem. So, you know, this is this used to be back in the day about a 60 billion market. It's shrunk. It's going to probably hit about 45 billion by the end of next year. And really, you know, this is just kind of a progression of where all the eyeballs are moving. So they're moving away from the linear TV networks to streaming. And so we're seeing kind of those ad dollars follow those eyeballs and going from, you know, the, the, the TV uh, medium to what is now called connected TV, which is really all the streaming platforms. And, you know, you're using all your connected TV devices, the, the Roku's and the, the Google's and all of that to kind of watch television. And that's where all of the advertising is moving as well. Unfortunately, Paramount doesn't have too much of a presence there. Yes, they do have, you know, Pluto TV, which is their solution, but it's not going to be able to kind of offset the leakage that we're seeing in the television ecosystem. Uh, and that is really a problem for all of these media companies, for Paramount a little bit more so. Our thanks to Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.